Hey, DTC pod, it's time to let your customers enjoy the products they love without the friction of reordering. That's why the world's most innovative brands like Pete's Coffee and Il Maquillage rely on order group subscriptions to build long lasting customer relationships and recurring revenue. Easy to manage and seamless for shoppers, Order Groove comes with the tools your business needs to become the next big subscription success story. Visit ordergroove.com slash DTCpod today to receive two months off your first contract. Again, that's ordergroove.com slash DTCpod. Also, are you curious on how much your business is worth? Get your free no obligation offer from Open Store at open.store. Cool. So anyway, Brandon, um, good to catch up with you. One thing we're really excited to talk about today is you've run CX for over the last year now at Maiden. Um, Maiden, we all know, is one of the fastest growing brands in e-commerce, specifically in the cookware space. So we're really excited to be able to have you on to talk a little bit about your experience running CX at Maiden, how you guys thought about it from the perspective of retention, growth, et cetera, how the team had such a strong commitment to CX and how that can apply to all of our different listeners who are in the D2C space and looking out to looking to grow out their uh, CX operations. So I guess maybe for our listeners who are not familiar with Maiden, uh, as crazy as that may sound, but for some of them who aren't, why don't you just give us a little bit of background about Maiden and the company that you were at? Yeah, for sure. So Maiden is predominantly direct consumer cookware company online. Founded in 2017, uh, two childhood best friends, one came from a multi-generation family of designing and outfitting professional kitchens, and his best friend had run e-commerce, uh, kind of performance marketing for some, some direct-to-consumer brands previously, and they realized no one was really doing that well direct-to-consumer in the cookware space where they had access to really, really premium tools made by multi-generational you know, factories that were the best of the best for whatever they produced. So... The company produces really, really premium products, which is really helpful in a direct-to-consumer company that when people actually buy what you're selling, they have a great experience and so found some pretty rapid growth and COVID hit and everyone was forced to stay home and cook three meals a day at home because restaurants were shut down and you couldn't go to Williams-Sonoma to you know buy your Allclad or Calphalon or whatever was out there. So you had to resort to going online. So Maiden was kind of in the sweet spot for the pandemic and grew, you know, 6x, nearly 7x in, in 2020, whatever. I feel like all my years kind of run together in pandemic times, but rapid, rapid growth and with a great product, people have a really good experience and it continued to scale pretty rapidly since. Well, and just so again, the listeners have an idea of some of the scale that we're talking made in is probably one of the largest brands in you know the e-commerce space as, as we sort of know it right now just so for our listeners just so they have an idea like how many orders roughly are we talking like per month that you guys are, are seeing come through warehouse is shipping a couple thousand orders a day typically on an average day of course seasonal i mean q4 for us is crazy and you know multiples of what you see kind of during the core of the year but continued to grow rapidly as the product line has expanded. But yeah, a couple couple thousand orders a day. So pretty decent scale. Exactly. And that's one thing that we're really excited to get into is because you guys, it's not, you know, you guys have kind of really reached that scale in terms of being one of the leading brands in e-commerce, supporting a ton of different SKUs, having a 
ton of different product lines, being able to ship all that product, create a great brand around it. So I think for our listeners, it'll be really exciting to hear about that process of scaling up and how CX plays such a critical role in that, right? So for our listeners, why don't we just go into a little bit about, you know, what your responsibilities are as uh, the head of CX for Maiden? Yeah, so I oversee all of our teams that manage anything direct uh, customer facing. So for us, our phones, our chat, our email, our social media support, anytime someone's got problems, questions, issues, all of those are feeding into our team directly. And then really working in my seat specifically on listening to that feedback, those problems, those issues that are bubbling up from our customers through our team. And how do we work strategically with the rest of the organization to continue to improve the customer experience, to improve the product, the website, our post-purchase email communication, our product inserts? How do we make sure that any customer that comes through you know, our pipeline and, and interacts with us is having the best experience they can and that we're continuing to work smarter and not harder and driving down the number of questions and problems that our customers are having as we continue to grow up so that we're not throwing bodies at problems to answer more questions that you know we could eliminate to begin with by being more thoughtful and strategic about what we're doing day to day. Yeah. And one thing I really loved the first time we chatted about, you know, the first thing we talked to Everything CX was just your initial approach to it. You almost took your position as like the quarterback on the behalf of all the customers in terms of getting and in terms of streamlining the relationship of what the brand was doing and matching the expectations of the customer. So you weren't looking at this in terms of like, oh, great, let me, you know, obviously you want to make sure you're able to handle all the tickets and your agents know the right things to say. But you were always looking at it as a vantage point of like, hey, I'm sitting here atop all this feedback and all these customers who are reaching out to us with great insights. How do I speak on behalf of all of them and communicate all their important learnings to the different stakeholders in our company? So that I, we can get buy-in on, on the product changes that may need to be made on the things that they're saying that they love. So you can double down on those, on the things that they're saying they're not quite clear on. So you, again, you can help through product and through website and through post-purchase experience, clarify those expectations. So I love just your approach to where you put yourself in that conversation and not saying, hey, this is just about me counting the number of tickets that I'm doing and focusing just in on my first agent response time, all these different KPIs are important. But what where you really sat was as this intermediary between these two massive voices. And, and in my mind, that's one of the most important roles um, within a company, especially as you're going through a period of growth where problems can really magnify, right? Like as you alluded to in the scale that you guys are at, when you're doing thousands of orders and a thousand different people are thinking the same thing, if you can fix their issue before they have to get to it, you just saved and retained, you know, a thousand more orders in that month and you're going to get those customers coming back. So again, having that perspective, I think is a really cool way that brands can think about what CX actually is and not just saying, yeah, we need to have great support and we need to respond. Yes, of course you, you need to be able to do that. But, but that was one of the things that really jumped out at me. And then before Maiden, where were you before and what do you think equipped you and gave you kind of the skill set that you were able to put into practice once you joined the team? Yeah, it's a great question. So I've spent my whole professional career, you know, 12, 13 years now at this point in service roles of of some sort. The original goal as a high schooler was to go work for a pro sports franchise on the business side. That just always intrigued me as a lifelong athlete. And so went to school for business management and sports management in undergrad. 
and then went to the University of Central Florida for my MBA, thinking if I got sick of sports at some point, easier to go out and get another job with an MBA than to try and take a sports-specific degree into another industry. And so started working for the Orlando Magic as an intern when I was finishing up grad school and got my foot in there, which funny enough, wearing a jacket as, as we speak, still a lot of my wardrobe today. But stepped into a role on the client services side. So retention uh, and service for our season ticket holder base and spent seven years there. And and the last five of which was responsible for all of our event level premium season ticket holders that were spending significant dollars to watch. what Unfortunately, was not a real great on the court product at the time, which meant there was a hyper focus on the rest of their experience. And so it had to be really smart and strategic about how do we make sure we're adding as much value for these individual customers that are spending significant dollars every year on entertainment that they could easily go and spend those in a million different places. We had to be really smart and intentional about how we serviced our folks to retain and, and grow those dollars year over year and had a couple of kids and sports means you live at the arena and, and I wanted to be a dad as well and have a life outside of the Amway Center. So Transition to head of service ops role at Corksicle, another predominantly direct consumer brand, but certainly huge retail presence as well. You know, tumblers, canteens, barware, you know, for anyone that's not familiar with the, the product, but really helps build out their account management service, direct to consumer accounts on the wholesale side, international distribution, custom segments, and, and really scaling out of those teams and really learned a ton going from white glove, small account base that you know intimately to shipping hundreds of thousands of of products every week all around the globe and what does service look like in that environment. So I had to shift a lot of what I had known in service world magic as I transitioned into that role. So I was there for three years, you know, tripled our headcount and revenue there. So got to attack a lot of fun problems and challenges there that helped set me up to uh, step into the maiden role. Uh, it what was a really chaotic time. I started the week after Black Friday and Cyber Monday during that year of the pandemic where we were growing 6, 7x. So jumped straight into the deep end and had to very quickly you know, flex a lot of those muscles that I had built in my time at, at Corksicle that you know, certainly came from the baseline I'd Know, had it my time with the magic. What did that look like when you joined? So I know, I know you said you kind of got thrown into the mix at Maiden right, yeah. right in the swing of things. So what did the CX team look like when you joined and how did you slot right in um, when you came aboard? Yeah. So I think it was four or five full-time agents, a couple of part-time support. It was email support only, didn't have the bandwidth to have phones or chat or social media support. It was right after Black Friday, Cyber Monday, in a year where trying to keep anything in stock was virtually impossible. So long lead times, back orders for a lot of the orders, which is best as we tried to communicate those lead times to folks and expected ship dates, you know, still led to a ton of questions and problems. So we were sitting on, you know, or four to five day kind of first response time for a lot of the stuff in the email. We had called a couple of our CEO titled as like snow days internally where like we had everyone in the company kind of shut down for a day and attack the queue, including our, you know, president, our CFO, like all of our, you know, leadership team, the accounting team, whoever was all kind of jumping in and attacking whatever questions we could just to try and get back to folks before the holiday. So really quickly identified that this is a leadership team and a culture that 
cares about the customer. They're not putting CX off on the side. Good luck. We feel for you, you know, here's some coffee and we'll cater in some food for you guys to try and work hard. Like, no, like they're in the trenches with us and making sure we had what we needed to get through the chaos. And then very quickly as we we got through the backlog, we got to steady state in you know, January that we were able to look back at what do we need to actually build a really solid baseline service standard? Because anyone that's interacted with customer service for any organization knows that there's just certain baseline expectations in terms of timeliness for a response and accessibility when you call or chat or that those channels are even available to you that, that we needed to get to a really solid baseline. The product is phenomenal. Like the cookware is incredible. People had a good experience there, but when there were problems or questions, they were left, you know, lacking in a lot of ways. So very uh, supportive from the top down to scale the team, to hire appropriately, to put in place some tools that allow us to better self-service, to drive down the number of questions, to rethink the proactive communication, to try and limit questions and problems from coming in, you know, to redo some product inserts to better educate. So people had a better experience if they weren't familiar with using some of our more nuanced products that you know, may not realize exactly what they're buying and the extra care and attention that certain products require than, you know, some of the cheaper stuff that, that's out there. So really got to a really solid baseline. And then to your point earlier, that's where I felt like I really got to have some fun and how do we be more strategic in what we're doing? So it's not getting out of the backlog and getting CSAT where we want it and getting our first response time where we want it. Like we're there, like it's a one hour response time. It's a, you know, low to mid 90, like CSAT, like high performing CX org, reactively speaking. Now, how do we go on offense and be a little bit more proactive to really separate ourselves from the competition and how we take care of our customers kind of start to finish throughout the customer journey? A lot of things you said there that were were really informative. But one thing I really liked was that idea of like achieving it, your baseline for CX. I don't think that's something that's necessarily talked so much about necessarily in the in the D2C space, but understanding that like, hey, once we're at a an acceptable re- first agent response time, once our agents have the right answer to these questions, once we've kind of righted the ship, now we can go on offense and think about the different opportunities that we can solve so we're solving them before they come. So I just think in terms of a framework that a lot of DTC brands can have to work with is trying to kind of identify their own baseline of CX and then knowing once they have a head of CX who's leading them to that baseline, then they should start trying to think about the opportunities of, okay, how do we get beyond this? And how do we get beyond me just answering one-to-one tickets or help coaching different agents on it? You because Because there, there's like, diminishing returns. Whereas if they go on offense and say, hey, let me work with products so they can understand what our customers are actually saying about these things and we can solve things upstream. Now we're providing a ton, a ton of value. So I just love that as a framework. And I I think that's something that we'll see more and more brands adapt. The other things that I love that really jumped out were the idea of all hand support. So I know that's a popular topic where And for listeners who may not know, all-hand support is when everyone in the organization hops on and starts getting into the weeds and answering support for themselves because then it helps them get a better, build better empathy for the customer, understand the problems that they're going through, and maybe understand how their role impacts the actual customer experience and what customers are feeling on the back end. But what I do see a lot of the times is you'll see in the early days, 
brands where leadership, maybe they start off answering support tickets. And then once they scale to the point where they're able to outsource it or hire a manager to come on, they kind of, that's where they kind of pass it off. They're like, yeah, yeah, I've done that. Uh, they're focused on the other things. They'll move to, you know, stuff about brand performance, operations, all these other things, but they kind of leave that, the support in the dust. So I think that's where things, at least from my perspective, get really exciting is when you have a, a leadership team in place that values support and is willing to, you know, at the most critical times, actually get in the trenches with you and understand the problems that you're solving, that's going to empower the CX to push a lot of those decisions that the customers are saying forward. So not just saying like, oh yeah, yeah I've done that. I've, I've done support in the early days when we were doing, you know, 10 tickets a day, like things change at the scale you're at and those insights. And I'm sure also when your founders and your, all the leadership is with you answering those tickets, they're probably saying the same thing that you're saying. They're probably saying, hey, there's some really important, interesting information that we're finding here and they know what role you can play as again after your the ship is, the, is course corrected and after everything reaches that baseline they're like okay now let's invest in cx and let's help them help the rest of the teams right yeah well and my goal of course is that we don't have to rely on all hand support like totally our president and you know vp of ops like have really big important problems and challenges they should be attacking and they shouldn't have to take a day off to jump in. But to your point, I think at scale, it gets easy. It's like, oh man, I'm glad I don't have to touch that and deal with the problems and the ugly stuff. Like I like seeing the five-star reviews. I like seeing CSAT sitting at 94%. Like that's awesome. That's great. But the 6% is where I feel like a lot of the insights come from that can be a little uncomfortable to dig into. But I think that's what's really going to drive improvement longer term. And for us, it made in like it's where I've really credited Chip and Jake, our, our two co-founders and, and Lindsay and Chad are VP of marketing and, and VP of ops that we sat together every two weeks and had a strategic conversation about what do we need to be working on? And that we didn't get to steady state with really strong CSAT first response time. And they gave a pat on the back and thumbs up and said like, hey, great job, keep it up and let us run thing. Like, no, they still wanted to know where we could continue to improve. And I think that shows a ton about their character and you know how much they value what we're doing from a CX perspective. And, and honestly, I think it's a huge factor in why we've continued to grow and why we've continued to see a drop in that ticket to order ratio to your point earlier, like table stakes, solid baseline service expectations being met. We're paying attention to how many questions and problems are coming in relative to the number of orders that are coming in. Like those things really, really matter. And by paying attention there, it means we're getting better at what we're doing day to day across the org, not just on the CX side, but in all of these other verticals of the business as well that really matter. No, definitely. And I think that's an important point because again, these teams, they have really important stuff to be doing. They shouldn't have to be landing in CX, but just that ability every once in a while to A, know that they care at that level, I think is really important. And again, just being able to, for people to have a lot of different leaders at these organizations, if they're just focusing on one part of the business, they've may ne never even have opened up their own help desk and really like seen things from the vantage point of the customer once they've scaled. So I think that's kind of the takeaway. And then as a segue, I know you mentioned working with all these different leadership teams. So why don't you talk a little bit about some of those other teams that you worked cross-functionally with 
and what those relationships sort of looked like. So what, you know, I know you mentioned working closely with CEOs and C-level across the whole org. So what did some of those loops look like for you? What were you reporting for them? What kind of buy-in were you getting and how were you guys working collaboratively to move the customer experience as a whole forward? Yeah. So on my end, it all starts with identifying what are the problems and issues that we need to go do something about? Like, What are the questions that are coming in from customers that customers don't want to ask? What are the problems that people are experiencing that we can do something about? Like, We're shipping physical products, so there's going to be issues that happen anytime you're shipping products across the country. There's going to be damages. There's going to be stuff that's lost that we're limited in, in what we can actually do to solve for some of those problems. But there's a lot that we can solve for internally when we think about issues or bugs or problems on the website. How do we very quickly capture that feedback, those issues, whatever info our web team needs to go try and solve whatever that specific problem is that we've got those feedback loops in place internally to capture the feedback, share it internally so that they can do something about it. Performance marketers are spending a ton of time and energy and resources in getting people to site. And if there's something that's not working right, we're hearing about that first on the service side and how do we communicate that. And then from a data perspective, like there's so much opportunity. This is a, a huge focus for us to be better this year than we've been in the past. Is like we've got a ton of data on returns and return reasons and product defects and warranty requests and variety of you know Yapo feedback like product reviews on you've had it for a couple of weeks using it. Like what's your experience been so far? And so how do we pull all that data together to identify trends and like, hey, like product team, we're not getting is or we're seeing a drop off in performance uh, reviews, ratings across X product. I and mean, I think we may need to dig in from a QC perspective here or, you know, we're seeing breakage rate up into the right in some of these SKUs. Like, I think we need to rethink our packaging that, you know, with a few hundred SKUs, like that data can get clunky really quickly. So if you're not digging in and putting in place some structure to identify changes to those trends, there's stuff that can easily get lost. And as we shift towards our individual margins across stuff, like there's some insights there that can certainly drive some real savings and impact across the business. But you've got to put in place enough of a structure to identify those things. And then when you do identify something, have some relationships and strategic conversations in place to go and work closely with those other teams to actually make some change. So I'd say product, the web team, and then of course the operations team and working with our, our 3PL or warehouse partner on executing orders that when we're seeing trends and issues there that we're solving the right stuff with, with our partners there that are executing the orders. Totally. And then in terms of you just mentioned working closely with, let's call it like the operations team, right? What does that loop look like in terms of, you know, how frequently are you guys in communication of what's going on and how can you be proactive about things as well? Because there's certain times like you're saying like, okay, maybe something happens where a shipment is delayed, right? And so now you, have, you may have to go on offense with the customers and give them a heads up. Hey, just so you know, X is going to happen. So you're helping them make sure that they have the right expectation and they're not just like, where's my package? Where's my package? Where's my package? So are there any instances you can kind of talk about with how you guys would think about being that you are a physical product and managing customer expectations? Yeah. So from a actual like meeting cadence, you know, we've got a weekly... And I roll up under our VP of ops. That's the head of our ops organization reporting directly into our, our co-founder. So we sit under operations. So that's the team I'm working most closely with day to day. 
we've got a every Monday we've got a full operations meeting where it's you know not our our frontline service staff but everyone else across the logistics and ops and CX side of the business at all you know talking through expectations for the week trends problems from the previous week and and just having a 45 minute strategic conversation about what's going on what are the themes problems that we're seeing on the CX side that the ops team needs to know about so when it comes to fulfillment issues problems delays and initial scans and getting product into the carrier network and some of those things like we're raising some of those concerns for my counterparts on the logistics knob side to do something and then i've got a strategic conversation with the other directors and our vp across ops you know middle of the week to be a little more strategic about moving forward our larger projects and what's going on with our partners and vendors and you know inbound supply chain and a lot of those things but i'd say an example to talk about specific uh, kind of going on offense, like we've got for any out of stock item that we are taking orders for putting in place some structure and rules about when do we mark something is sold out? We don't take orders versus when do we put a future expected ship date that's within a proper window where we're not going to get complaints and why we try and make it as obvious to the customer prior to adding it to your cart and in the cart and in your post-purchase email confirmation that this has an expected ship date of February 1st, like, Inevitably, you're going to get questions. Where's my stuff? Where's my stuff? Even if you communicated that three times before. So how do we be, how are we intentional about making sure that's as obvious to people as possible? And then the supply chain logistics side of things has been absolute chaos for the last couple of years. And sure, we have a general idea on when we're expecting product that we know is already in the water from Italy where the you know pan's being manufactured to getting into port and then getting to our warehouse and being received and kitted and in stock to ship. How do we pay closer attention to those expected ship dates on the site when there are delays anywhere throughout that journey? And and we want people to purchase, so we want to be as close to accurate as possible. We don't want to under-promise and over-deliver where this is going to ship March 1st because there's a lot of people that aren't going to buy, even if we think it's going to ship earlier. So how do we properly manage and communicate any of those changes so we're as, as accurate as possible on the site. So we're not having to send that email of, hey, so sorry, we're going to miss your ship date. But that's important too, that if we are going to miss an expected date that we laid out, I don't want to wait for the customer to realize, hey, you said it was going to ship yesterday, it's today, where's my stuff? But instead, hey, how to delay import, this is what's going on, expecting it's going to ship on X date, and how do we make sure we're not wrong twice? So how do we properly manage that becomes really important and went from a really reactive setup there in a lot of ways to being much more structured in how we manage those dates on the site to lead to a better customer experience by managing those expectations properly. Are you interested in DTC and e-commerce content? Join Trends exclusive community for everything DTC, the DTCers community. We're talking marketing, product, growth, and more, all about DTC. Go to trend.io slash podcast. That's T-R-E-N-D dot I-O slash podcast and look for the Slack community link to claim your invite. We hope to see you on there. And I think that's something that's really interesting to hear from your perspective because on as a consumer, and this is probably something that you know a lot of e-commerce brands think about, especially with dealing with inventory challenges and how they're communicating when things are being restocked, when it's going to be available to ship. But when you're a consumer and you're buying, one of the 
one thing that you're really taking account is, okay, when am I going to get this product, right? Like that's a very important variable in the buying decision. And when, when a brand is dishonest or like, say you guys know, for example, the company says, let's market as, you know, March one, we're going to be available to ship. And you already know it's not going to be March one. And you're like, okay, whatever. It's a couple months out. Let the customer will buy it. And then we can alert them later. Thing is, is like that puts you in a sort of a bind and a not great relationship with that customer because the customer may be depending on that. I know this happened to me a bunch during, I'm not gonna say the brand, but I was shopping over the holidays for a, a bed. I needed a bed, obviously supply chain issues, et cetera. And I knew I had some family into town. So I bought a bed that said, hey, we're restocked. We're gonna be restocked by November X. And I was like, okay, November one, that's gonna be perfect. That's gonna be plenty of time for when my family comes in, they're gonna have a bed for Christmas, right? I was like, I figured two months, like that's perfect. And then I start getting emails like way later, like this is after like the even ship date. And they're like, oh, hey, so sorry. There's like shipping delays and we're not gonna be able to do X, Y, Z. And as a customer, I'm thinking one, okay, I'm not gonna ever buy anything else from you guys again, cause that was really messed up now that my family doesn't have a bed and two, I would have very easily, I would have bought a different bed and come back and gotten something from you guys another time, but it just kind of totally destroys the reputation, the trust that the customer has with the brand. And I think it's it's something that when you experience it as a customer, it's really real. And a lot of time when you're sitting in the driver's seat making decisions for your brand, it's really easy to look at the numbers and say, hey, we need to grow. If we set this number at this date, we're gonna convert X amount of orders but it's harder to put yourself in that seat as the customer. So I think what you're kind of saying is like, yeah, we wanna be as honest as we can about the customer. And then if something comes up, again, we'll over communicate and we'll be proactive and let them know like, hey, really there was nothing we could do. Like we didn't mean for this to happen. Let's see how we can make it up for you. That sort of thing, as opposed to just saying like, oh yeah, whatever it's coming in, we know it'll be there eventually, so. Yeah, and I think it's huge in maintaining that level of trust. You know, the marketing team is, working really, really hard and spending a lot of dollars to acquire a customer and get them to check out. And I'm sure you did your research on your beds and like found one that had great reviews that you felt good about that was going to get there in time. That was a lot of marketing dollars to get you to click buy. And you did and had a terrible experience because they mismanaged expectations. And and for us, like we talk a lot on our side of the business of the customers are right to like know and be kept in the loop and what's going on. And we'd rather deliver bad news fast and control the messaging ourselves and be prepared to like own our own mistakes. Like customers can see through the garbage excuses that brands will throw out on stuff too. And it's something I encourage our individual agents. Like sometimes we drop the ball and like stuff goes wrong that shouldn't have happened. And like the last thing we want to do is make excuses there, but you know, apologize, own it, and then do something to resolve it. So I mean, I think there's some that's done on a one-to-one level that is really important from a CX perspective, but on a more global, you know, level is also really important to properly manage those so that, and for our brand in particular, for mattress companies, a little different is how often are you buying another mattress that like they know like their repeat purchase rate is not near as important for us as hundreds of SKUs like anything you need for your kitchen from glassware, plates, French porcelain, bakeware, stainless clad, cocoa. I mean, like our product assortment is huge and you can go outfit your entire kitchen with world-class products like on our site for pretty much anything you need, which is awesome. And we hope that if we can get you to buy once, the product's awesome, like not worried about that, but you have a great experience. And even if you have a problem, if we resolve it really, really well, your trust in us goes up 
and you're much more likely to buy a second time. And the customer acquisition cost is the same whether they buy one pan or a $3,000 outfit your entire kitchen package that gives you everything you need. So for the ones that bought one or two, how do we get them to transact a second or a third time when those initial dollars are, are already spent to get them in the door? You know, we need, we need to take great care of people once they've committed to purchase and trusted us enough to you know, give us their credit card number and order something that they physically haven't touched or seen, you know, outside of a, a website, you know, or, or an ad somewhere on Instagram or YouTube or wherever. And this is something that really jumps out because you see a lot of brands today focusing exclusively on the, the performance marketing side of things. And as you alluded to, that's really important. That's where you're getting your customers in the door. But if you're thinking of things in terms of the long term for your business, right, especially like you said, you offer a variety of different products. It's not just one thing. And you're betting that if they order their first thing from Made In, they're going to outfit their whole kitchen and home with products from Made In. And what's so exciting about applying that thinking is you say, okay, we spent this money to convert this customer. Let's invest on the back end of that relationship. Because if we can meet their customer expectation, deliver a, like a phenomenal customer experience, LTV on one purchase might be a hundred bucks and maybe CAC to acquire them a little bit less than that. So you can be profitable, but like imagine the profitability when you actually bring in retention, you maintain this whole relationship where they're able to buy products from you over the course of one year, two years, five years, 10 years, et cetera. And you think of it in terms of that scale. So, and then just going back to our example that I had talked about with the bed, it's like, yeah, this was a, a, a home furniture company. And yes, well, if they're looking at it from a data perspective, they may say, Hey, you know what, actually, like, because this is such a high margin product and like, our cost to acquire that customer was like 50 bucks. We make $500 on this bed. No problem. I don't really care if he came back because he already bought a bed. But at the same time, that brand might be giving up, call it 20, 50, $100,000 in future potential revenue for me. Because like, if I, as I get older, maybe I have a home, a family, they need furniture, they need goods. And now that damaged the relationship with the brand. So sure, they like in the short term suite, we pocketed 500 bucks on this and no big deal. Cause like that from a, if you're looking at it from a data perspective, that's super profitable, but like, you know, all the thousands of dollars on the back end that they could have lost. And that's not something that, that maybe even factoring into their thinking, but that rant aside, I think where all, all you're sort of saying is like, Hey, CX is so important because this paves the way to retention, repeat purchases, and this is where brands can really make and optimize and run a profitable business from is that repeat purchase. It's not just being able to get them in the funnel, purchase once and then what? And I think that's such a big opportunity for a lot of these brands in the D2C space is really investing in the retention side of the business because everything before was just let's optimize ads, let's optimize ads, conversion, conversion, conversion. But now as things get more competitive and you're thinking about building out the business, that's where CX comes in. And that's where hiring and bringing on the right CX teams and leaders like yourself comes into play. So maybe one other thing I'd want to ask is from your vantage point, right? Like you've had the experience working in service and then moving over into scaling up things that made in. But for other brands, what are some of the characteristics you might look in in First, let's start with just building out a CX team. How do you go about thinking about that? What is it like? Who are you looking to bring on? And what's the infrastructure look like that you're looking to put in place? Yeah, for sure. So from like a personal skill set perspective, in smaller growing organizations where there's 
you know, more work on my plate than I realistically have time to attack everything. So I can't afford to have frontline staff that you can't fully trust to take care of the customer and show up and perform, you know, their day-to-day tasks well. So really identifying folks that have a bit of that ownership, you know, mentality and being able to think what's best for the brand and the customer like combined in, in properly managing that relationship. Like we we touched on before, we know it costs X amount to acquire a customer. And sometimes a customer has a poor experience and we can't necessarily have white and black lines on this does fall in the policy and does not. And like, that's a hard and fast decision a hundred percent of the time. Like sometimes like, Hey, this is not truly something we should cover, but realize from where you're sitting this has not been a great experience and I'm going to go ahead and make an exception, take care of you, knowing that if I say no and draw a hard line here, the chances of you coming back is close to zero. And like we've lost any potential future earnings from them, but empowering the customer like agent, like our service staff to say, Hey, like totally understand not something we normally cover, but you know, realize this is your first experience and we don't want to leave you with a poor taste in your mouth. We'll allow the exchange to return the whatever, you know, we'll get you a replacement out. Here's some tips to properly maintain it. And then cookware, there's a lot of user error involved. Carbon steel, like, is not like cooking with stainless steel. Yes, you left it in the sink. Of course, it rusted. It's carbon steel. But like, they didn't know. So like, there's times where we have to make exceptions, because it's the right thing to maintain the relationship to get them to purchase again, because they've got the trust. And now we can educate you on how to properly take care of it. So you have a great experience those things matter so identifying staff that can think not just in hard and fast rules of this is or is not what we do and to empower them to make decisions is really really big and that is people that can work with enough flexibility and trust to execute kind of day-to-day just because i don't have the time to babysit their adults and and if i trust and empower them like engagement is higher retention is higher you know i've been lucky that if you know i've been able to take care of my staff and not had turnover, which I know in a lot of service environments, you're dealing with the one to 2% of problems and issues all day. And that can be really draining. But by empowering staff to take care of folks and bubble up problems and trends and trying to solve for those. So those questions don't keep coming in. No one wants to be a hamster on a wheel that's answering the same question every day. What can we do to prevent that same question from coming in so that they can work on more interesting you know, challenges and problems is helpful. And then I'd say for anyone that's taking a little bit more of a leadership perspective, so in kind of our team leads and managers, we need people that can proactively identify problems and issues that the team's encountering and just go take action. So someone that is action oriented and doesn't wait for direction top down on what their priority should be, but just realizes, hey, this is something I'm hearing about from the team that's causing problems. I'm going to go dig in with the warehouse team on what may be going on with this specific item. And then I hear in my touch base with them, hey, like this is what was going on. Here's what we did. It's been fixed. They've QC'd. We're good to go. Like people that just take initiative like that is huge for any sort of growing brand where there's never a shortage of problems and projects that need to be tackled to move forward. One thing you mentioned there about empowering your agent level and and your customer service team to know how important their job is. That's something that we always focused on as well, because it wasn't just about, okay, you solved their problem. Great job. It's about let's giving, even giving them and making sure they have the path to escalate those things, because there's nothing worse than as an agent, 
if you're answering the same question over and over and over and you take it either to your boss or another team and only for that person to come back with, oh, like, don't worry about that. Just keep answering it. Right. Like the best thing you can do to empower your agents is to actually listen to them because they have the insight. So if they're bringing something to you, you know, there's probably something going on there. And this is where, you know, kind of what we're working on is really important and being able to kind of suss out, like, is this a problem? Is it not a problem? How can we quantify it? And I think that's something that's really important for brands to do, because if you can clearly say, hey, here's the information about all the cases that reached about X, Y, Z, we're not going to pursue this for now because we just don't have the time, the budget or whatever. You're killing it. Keep doing what you were doing. If we see it go up over time, then we're going to have to take action. And having that like agreed upon loop between people, that's really important. But when there's nothing worse than as an agent or as head of CX, where you bring a problem that you're seeing to another department and they're just like, eh, keep doing what you're doing. Right? Yeah, for sure. And my boss, Chad, our VP of ops says it well. I'm like, what are the questions that customers don't want to have to ask? And, and how do we give them that information in some form or fashion so they don't have to ask those? And for us, there's certain questions that we love to have come in. Like someone's trying to decide between products or what is the difference between stainless steel and carbon steel? And what should I be using these for? Like, we would love to have those conversations. How do I season this? Like, absolutely call us. Like we want to make sure they have the right information and like have a phenomenal experience with it. Cause if they're guessing their way through some of those things, they're going to feel like, well, the product's terrible. You didn't use it, right? Like we didn't educate you well enough for you to have a good experience with it. So certain conversations we're fine with having, but where's my order or how do I return this? Or where is this made? Like, those are questions like we don't want to have to answer over and over and over. And the customer doesn't want to have to reach out to a service team to get that info. So how do we self-service those things, better communicate proactively you know, automate that through our, you know, self-service chatbot tool to get them a quick, immediate answer instead of waiting for an agent to be online the next day. Those things matter a lot. Yeah. And, and just taking that one just a little bit further, it's almost interesting. Like before in the conversation, we talked about how you set up a baseline for, um, you know, making sure your, your key KPIs are in check, like your first agent response time. We have answers to all of the common questions. We have enough agents staffed, like that sort of thing. So reaching your baseline there. But what you just brought up with that was really interesting is almost establishing a baseline for what falls on the, hey, this is a problem and I'm confused. This is a poor experience side of the CX platform versus the, hey, I'm I'm looking to like engage with you guys as a brand. How can you help me, et cetera, and that side of the platform. So on the first side, that's almost where that's a failure in overall customer experience because you haven't communicated something to them, right? So if they're asking you a question that should have been productized or should have been able to be answered in some part of their customer journey, then you're doing a bad job and you're just using manual labor to like plug that stopgap. Whereas what you're saying is when you're actually helping them think through a decision or work through a super crazy corner case that like, you know, almost never happens, but you're going to provide excellent service for them. That's where customer service and CX gets really exciting. So figuring out ways as an organization to almost bucket those two and say, hey, these are problems that we need to address. So I never hear that problem again versus, hey, this is something that only a human could answer. And we want to be able to provide the best service ever. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Okay. And then, you know, I guess, I think that's pretty much all the questions that I would have. I think we covered a ton of amazing information about CX, what it's like for you, you 
being able to guide Maiden and scale up so rapidly. And I guess the last question I'd have is just like, you know, in your day to day, what is working your position like? Like, what's your normal day to day like? And how does how would you just describe what it's like being a, a leader in CX? Yeah, so it looks different. I'd say it's a new job every three months. So, you know, three months ago, it looked very different from what it looks like today. Where we're sitting right now, you know, middle of January, we're through the holiday chaos, had a really successful holiday season, you know, maintaining strong kind of service standards through our, our crazy period. And, you know, how do we build on that really strong baseline that we established last year? So it's really thinking strategically about how do we do more of what you just talked about and being really proactive about having the right conversations with the right folks that we want to have to add to the customer experience. And for us, like there's a wide range of customers that we deal with. And we've got a B2B side of the business that's outfitting professional kitchens and are in probably two dozen Michelin star restaurants that are using our cookware in their kitchens that are the best of the best chefs in the world. And then we also have random college kid just got her first job, like doesn't know what she's buying, but you know, sees good reviews online and doesn't know the difference between a lot of what we're offering out there and and everyone in between. But regardless of who we're speaking to, we want to make sure we're meeting them at the level that they're at through the channel they want to interact with us at. And like, how do we do that at scale is a really interesting, fun challenge. And how do we get more targeted and personalized with the level of education? Because we don't want to speak underneath the professional chefs and we don't want to speak over the heads of you know, the, the more casual home cook that, that may not know a premium tool from a, a more basic one. But either way, we want to meet them where they're at with the right information in the right place and and how do we be more strategic about how we attack those problems and challenges this year or, or I think some of the questions we're trying to ask how do we create content that adds value to the customer experience and whether it's our customer or not but someone that's looking for more information on how to properly use these good tools that hopefully end up in the funnel that then come and buy our tools because they trust us as a brand and a voice and, you know, a source of, of education. So I think that's a lot of the stuff for this year that will be a lot of fun to tackle that we're really trying to dig into, you know, with these cross-functional teams right now. Sweet. And then I guess the last question I just have is where can our listeners or anyone else learn more about Made In and more about you personally, if they want to, you know, are you on Twitter, LinkedIn, any of that sort of stuff? Yeah, LinkedIn is really the only kind of social media place where I'm I'm active and, and spend some time. I've gotten sucked into the the Instagram and Facebook rabbit hole too many times in the past. I don't spend a whole lot of time in in some of those other channels. But Brandon Blonick, you know, on you know LinkedIn there and can include that info for you. And MadeInCookware.com certainly encourage anyone looking for anything to outfit a kitchen to to check out the site sell everything and you know product is king so if if we can't produce the best quality of whatever we're not going to do it and like a lot of you know e-commerce brands use it try it for 45 days if you don't like it for any reason super easy return process but you know we have a lot of trust that when folks get the tools in their hands they're going to really enjoy it and if you have questions encourage you to to reach out to the team via chat or email or phone and you know should have some friendly person on the other other line or other side of the computer to take great care of you. Sweet. So anyway, thanks again for joining us, Brandon. A lot to unpack there and in learning about CX from one of the best in the business. So um, that's all we got. Thanks again for joining us. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks. 